0: Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, missionary to Zimbabwe, Africa, sent out of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. Transitioning to a foreign mission field is a big deal for any family. That first year is especially critical with so many dramatic adjustments being made, On the program today to talk about that first year on the foreign field is my dear friend, Thomas Irvin. Brother Irvin was one of my first guests for the podcast, a program in which we tackled the subject of deputation back in 2020. Since that time, Brother Irvin has deployed to Uganda in East Africa, and he's recently reached that one year milestone in this new field of service. I had occasion up late to make a short trip to Uganda, and it afforded Thomas and I the opportunity to sit down and talk about his family's adjustment to the foreign field in his first year of ministry. This is the first of a two-part series on the first year with missionary to Uganda, Thomas Irvin. Now for the conversation. Brother Irvin, it's been almost two years since our previous conversation aired on Great Commission Conversations. We were tackling the subject of deputation and you've now been just over a year since your arrival in Uganda. So I want to quiz you a little bit today about your family's transition to Africa and maybe see if you can relate to some of the lessons that you've gleaned in your first year on this field. Um, as I'm loath to bring it up, <laughs> we're, we're all weary with it. Uh, but alas, uh, COVID-19 is, is one of those realities. Uh, I avoided this subject for as long as I possibly sure. could have. Sure. In the course of the podcast, um, it was the the whole hysteria related to the so called global pandemic right. was relatively new when you and I had our previous conversation on sure. the podcast. But you not only finished your deputation in in the in the midst of a global trans global pandemic, you also made your transition to a foreign mission field amidst extensive uh travel regulations Mm -hmm. and restrictions and so forth so i did want to i did want to ask you about this because it's a pretty harrowing story you just (laughs) simply you're getting your tests and getting your flights and getting to this field so maybe if you could start by giving us the short version of how you actually got from the u.s to uganda when you made this transition Uh, i i
1: would you know I, i wish it was a short trip um so that I could give a short, shorter version. Um, <laughs> it, it 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 was it was an unbelievable series of events. Um, in fact, you and I were in, in communication pretty extensively throughout that time. Uh, we we had our aim was to finish deputation in twelve months, and we pretty much did that. Uh, right right at the twelve month mark, we had everything we needed to to be able to go to Uganda. Yep uh we did have a few meetings left and i decided that we would we would try and finish those meetings and and see how it went because we we came back from uganda in february and we actually traveled through asia we we spent some time in japan we were supposed to go through hong kong and uh the whole world was was being brought into this hysteria about the coronavirus it was just becoming we were learning that we needed 2 weeks to you know, to, to get rid of the curve. <laughs> and um, by the time we got to the states, many states started shutting down. Many um, meetings were being canceled. Some churches refused to cancel and 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 really followed through. And and so you had all that going on. And our plan was to leave to come back here in June. Well, the whole world shut down, and there was no yeah. leaving in June. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> so so that we, it got put off to the end of the year. My wife was pregnant. If we didn't leave by July, we had to have. We had to stay anyways to, to have the baby. Uh, it was our first child, Bethany. And um, so we, uh, we, we had to stay until October for Bethany to be born, you know, right at the end of September, beginning of October. And uh, after Bethany was born, the Sten'sis family who we work with here were actually in the States on furlough through that wonderful time. And um, we coordinated with them. We were going to leave together in January. And that gave us time to get Bethany settled, uh, get her passports and paperwork and all that done. So we coordinated with them. We were going to fly back to Uganda together in January. Brother Keith has a lot of good infrastructure here. People would have been waiting for us at the airport, load our stuff up together, and we'd come back to Masaka and get started in ministry. That didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> um, our exit test. that uh, We we came face-to-face with the coronavirus at least a half dozen times, probably more, and never got it. In fact, we thought either either we're immune to it or we've already had it. I mean, it, it was it's, it's such a weird thing, you it know. It, it, it's it, it's so transmissible, and yet I've come face to face with it multiple times. We leave a meeting, and the church calls us: "Are you guys okay?" Yeah, we're fine. Like, well, seventy percent of our church has the coronavirus, you know from from that you know since the time you were here and so we want to make sure you know we just we should have gotten it multiple times and we and somehow we did not our exit test we test positive for the coronavirus <laughs> and it was like are you there's no way this is happening right now um, the doctor tells us you should plan for possibly up to three months uh, the coronavirus can live in your nostrils up to three months and because the testing is so sensitive that it, it'll find it even if you're not, even if it's not a valid, you know, valid thing, um, it, it it can be there. You will fail the test. They will not let you on the flight. We we from that time until we finally got to leave, we tested me and my wife tested eight times. The seventh time was inconclusive. Wow. The eighth time was negative, and it was finally time for us to fly. And then the worst snowstorm that Memphis, Tennessee has ever had. <laughs> or at least has had in 10 or 15 years hit when we're supposed to leave. I remember. Yeah. So we rented a U-Haul, packed the U-Haul up, and drove down to Atlanta and and moved our flights to Atlanta. And praise the Lord, we were able to get, get there, get tested. For the first time, we got a negative test. Like it was conclusively negative. Got on our flights. Had a very odd flight. The Atlanta airport, we go to the international terminal to get ready to check in, and there's like 20 people in the whole airport.
0: That's, that's crazy to think about. If you've ever been in the Atlanta airport, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah.
1: And think. then the airport, the, the, the international side is divided into medical testing facilities. So, uh, right as we're getting ready to leave, Delta implemented this new rule. Not only do you have to test, um, 72 hours, you have to have a valid test, you know, within 72 hours of where you're going to land. You also have to test with, I believe it was within four hours of your departure. So to facilitate that, they, they put testing centers inside the, the Delta airline, you know, or the, 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 terminals. So you go into a terminal, you test, and then they take you in a room where everybody they just tested is sitting together. Yeah. And really. it's like, man, you people Real are smart. insane, man. <laughs> so praise the Lord. We pass all our tests and praise the Lord. They did not touch Bethany. I, I, I think I would have had a big problem with that. so I'm, I praise God. We did not have to deal with that. And, um, had a wonderful flight all the way over. <laughs> finally landed and, and made our way to Masaka. So, uh.
0: yeah. How many? Uh, and and just to just to help with some of the context, how much how much luggage exactly? I mean, you <laughs> had to have a U-Haul to go from yeah. Memphis to Atlanta in in a snowstorm.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we did. We really we, we looked at the possibility of a of a uh, of container. a shipping container. Yeah. But we were looking at like eighteen to $20,000 for a shipping container. You know, Uganda is not coastal. Uh, it'd have to land, I presume, in Kenya and then be transported. And then there's all sorts of other dangers and possibilities. So uh, I, I did not want to present that to churches. I just didn't think it was a good idea. So what we did instead, and, and a major part of this luggage was uh, the Stences family tried to tell us ahead of time, if you can bring this... Sure. Bring it. Which well, is hugely beneficial. Yes. yes. Now, that meant bringing a lot of luggage, but there are many things we have here with us now that, that would be difficult to get our hands on otherwise because we brought it with us initially. And um, so we ended up—so Delta, um, there's some caveats to this. We went through a humanitarian aid uh, uh, travel agent. And with that, you get some extra benefits, uh, some 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 free baggage. You get one or two extra bags for free per person. So that greatly helped cut oh, down yeah. the cost. Sure. But Delta, if you're traveling internationally, will let you take up to ten bags per person. And so we bought a third seat for Bethany, which we 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 weren't required to do, but it gave us extra space on the plane because we didn't know what the we didn't know there was only going to be like twenty people on the plane. We just we assumed. Well, the, the the luggage allowance probably paid for the ticket. It, 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 so buying that extra ticket allowed us to take ten extra bags for free. That or not for free, but but it, it, but it included. Yeah, yeah, it gave us that uh, extra extra space, and so um, uh, we ended up taking about thirty bags. Yeah. Thirty thirty. We had bins, uh, you know, black, yeah, totes, black, and black totes, or something right. like that. Yeah. And um, and cardboard boxes. We used several cardboard boxes. But we, we packed all those up. We weighed every one of them ten times to make sure that they were right and um, got it all the airport. And then actually uh, Brad Barkowski um, contacted me. He said, you know, is there anything you need? I know people in the Atlanta area. And I said, well, I've got to take a U-Haul to the airport. And then i got to leave the airport and go drop off the U-Haul, leave my wife there with the bags, and then come back. And um, he said, "No, I know somebody there, a church there that, that that might be able to help you out." So the assistant pastor of a church there—I I wish I could recall the name—I I, I can't think of it—but uh, the assistant pastor came, met us at the airport, and he took the U-Haul so I could stay there with my wife and get things, get things organized. So,
0: thank thank God for the family of praise God. Praise the Lord. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: uh, that was that was intense i we're not even going to go into it but but you no doubt you dealt with it like everybody else that was on deputation or that was locked out of their fields because of restrictions mm-hmm. but the but a global pandemic it was it that it it will mess with your head yes. to be told yes that there are restrictions on getting into your country and we have no idea when they'll be lifted yes uh, so
1: really, really, uh, high pressure, high stress time. The opening of Uganda was sudden. Uh, we, we, we fully expected, and I, I said, I, I was really battling with what to do because, uh, um, we set some parameters so that we could make sure we were not abusing, you know, God's churches. Basically we, we, I said, you know, if we can't be there within a year from this time, then we need to think about you know, doing something else. Yeah. Uh, it, it may not be, you know, this may not be the time or place to, to do this. Cause we're not just going to sit here and collect money and, and, you know, not be on the mission field. And, um, I'm just all of a sudden the president said in September, we're going to open the airport in October. And then he opened it the next week in September. <laughs> it was, it was a, such a random thing. So praise the Lord. It, yeah. it worked out. Yeah. Amen. Well, <laughs> It must have
0: been a huge relief when you actually got here because it because that's what it, that, that was the goal all along. The goal was not just to go visit churches mm-hmm. to raise support and, and talk about going to Uganda. The idea was to get here and to get busy. But, of course, you not only uh, raised your support in the time of, of coronavirus and traveled in the time of coronavirus, you landed in Uganda and began a ministry mm-hmm. in the time of coronavirus. So what were the lockdowns like here in Uganda? How did, how did you adjust? What was ministry like in that first year mm-hmm. of extreme restrictions? And, uh, just run that down briefly,
1: if you would. Sure. Um, Uganda went from before we got here, their, their lockdown was quite extreme. It's considered one of the worst in the world. And, uh, they were locked down pretty hard for, for right about a year. And and as the airport opened, they began to lift restrictions. So the lockdown became lighter, but it never ceased. Uh, You had a curfew. You had limitations on the number of people in your car. You had, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, realities you you have to navigate. And uh, and praise the Lord, I have to say that we were able to come get set up and get to work. But it was only because we had somebody helping us. You know, Brother Keith and Miss Sally were... Were unbelievably helpful every step, step of the way. And it's a blessing to have somebody who's been here 26 years who can sure. say, you know, I hear what they're saying, but this is how it always works out. So just, you know, just relax. You know, it's, it, it'll be fine. You know, it, it's it's a blessing to have someone who can. He, Brother Keith is very practical and, and he takes his time with those things and, it, and it's a tremendous help. So um, when we got here, the lockdown was in effect. And, and you had to wear a mask wherever you went. There was a curfew. There, were, you know, it wasn't as bad, honestly, in, as it was as many in many places in America when we got here. Now they came out of a terrible, really, you know, uh draconian style lockdown. I mean, it was it was horrendous. Uh, but then we were here for just a, a few months, and then. <laughs> um, Announcements were made about the benefits that could possibly be made available to African countries if they were suffering disproportionately from the coronavirus. <laughs> and when that announcement was made, Uganda went back into an unbelievably strict lockdown. This time, you could not leave your district. They, they, said, literally, they literally said, you have, you have uh, three days to get to your home wherever mm-hmm. you're going to stay and When you get there, you cannot leave that. It'd be it'd be equivalent in America to saying you're not allowed to leave your county. So once you get in your county, you're not allowed to cross any any lines of that county whatsoever. the 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 uh, uh, curfew was either six p.m. or seven p.m. You had to be home. You could not be on the streets streets at that time. Um, it, it was um, It was both. It, it was it was it was quite sad to see some of the things that took place. The the police were quite brutal. Um, it, it, it was it was a rough time for Ugandans. Um, they, they didn't mess with us so much as long as you obviously as long as you obeyed the rules. And we and we and we did. We we tried our best to obey the rules. The Ugandans like to test the line and see how far they can go. And and uh, the police were quite brutal in response. Um, and so it, it was really an odd and rough time. Uh, you could not have church. Um, you could not meet at your church. We. We continued to have church. Uh, we split the church the church up into house churches. And uh, we, we met all around town in various house churches and things like that. And, and the police never gave us a hard time about it. Um, it. It wasn't technically allowed. But in those situations, you have to decide if you're going to obey God or you're going to obey your government. And it may come with a cost. And uh, we decided it would be best to continue to meet in a, in a biblical fashion. But we did want to try and facilitate it, it, this is one of those subjects that, that it really made me think a lot more about during the lockdown. The overall utility of having a building, it, it's good and it's bad. And, um, the, the, the good is you have a central place to meet and, and all of God's people can come together. The bad is that building is regulated by a government that could care less about God and they will tell you how you can and can't use it. And God's people need to be willing at some point to say, we don't need the building. We can, we can meet anywhere. We can serve God anywhere. And and so they gave us opportunity to practice that and to put that into, into action. Uh, as far as ministry, brother, we brother gross, uh, a young man that I've been working with here basically since I got here, he's, he's a tremendous young man. He is a, he is a Ugandan who was faithful to Jesus Christ. Um, he, he lives and works with me on my property. Um, Every Thursday, every Friday, and every Sunday, we went out soul winning together. And you, you couldn't drive a car. Uh, you could drive a motorcycle, but you could not have a passenger. Uh, so he and I would just, uh, right across from our house, there's a huge village right across from where I live. He and I would take our Bible, take tracks and go walking over there and, and, and go soul winning. And, uh, people were still out and about. People were open to talk. Lots of people got saved. Um, it, it, it was a, a gross, got a, got a, a tremendous amount of practical experience that he that he may or may not have gotten previously, and uh, it didn't slow us down at all. It, it just we had to adapt to the new rules and the new and the new way of life. And um, if you were if you were not permitted to take
0: a vehicle out, couldn't have a pasture on a motorcycle. I guess your your wife was
1: more or less confined to to your my wife home. and daughter didn't leave our compound for eight months. They stayed in our house in our compound for eight months. I think one time we walked across the street to the to the market across the street. Uh, wow. Otherwise, they stayed there. Now, praise the Lord, we, we have a wonderful home that the Lord's given us here, and and they have plenty of space to get out and roam. And my wife handled it unbelievably well. Um, but at, at least eight months, she was not she she was not I believe, the home. Well,
0: praise the Lord, it's
1: over yes. as far as we know. <laughs>
0: It's been tense forward, hopefully. Uganda has
1: been continually moving in the we're over it direction. And and we pray to God that it keeps going that direction.
0: So uh, these things related to the pandemic, these are in in addition to the standard difficulties related to moving to a new place. And I was sort of, I I did a bit of review in my mind as I prepared for this podcast uh, and, and thought about some things that you've (laughs) <laughs> tackled. <laughs> You've endured since being here. Yeah. And so I, I, I've, I've prepared a few uh, questions here. I'll give you rapid fire <laughs> and uh, see, see how you respond. Yeah. Uh, so number one, what are mango flies and
1: how did you learn about them? <laughs> um, so in Uganda, you'd, you'd, it's nearly impossible to find a dryer for sale. There's no, I mean, it, there's a tiny market of people who use them, so it, they're they're very rare to find. If you do find them, they're usually really expensive, and they're usually a commercial-based dryer, so they're really expensive. Uh, so we don't we don't have a dryer. Or we didn't have a dryer. We do now, praise the Lord. Um, so all your clothes, uh, you hang them outside on the line. Now the the issue with that, or how we came to learn of uh, mango flies, is that. Uh, Apparently, in, in East Africa and other parts of Africa, and, and apparently they're 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 coming to uh, uh, from what I've read, they're coming to a part of the world near you as well. So, <laughs> those of you listening, yeah, uh, you may want uh, to th- consider these things. Um, as you hang your clothes outside, these flies l- like the moist the moisture of the of the clothes that are hanging, and they they get on the clothes and they 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 lay their eggs on it. And those eggs, when they hatch, They are are maggots, and in order to survive and to grow and to turn into future flies, they need something to feed on. Well, they go from your clothes, and you put them on into your skin, and they literally embed themselves like something out of a movie into your skin, and they they feed off the flesh of, of your body. And so, so you did, but you didn't know any of this. I had no right? idea. No clue. <laughs> this was, this was something you unfortunately had so learned the hard way. My daughter had this bump on her arm that was turning into a boil and my wife had about six of them on her back. And we, we chalked it up to, you know, you got some bad bug bites from somewhere. It'll, it'll heal. You'll be fine. We'll keep an eye on it. Um, we had to make a trip to Kampala and while we were there in the hotel, my, my I'm, I'm sitting at the desk working on my computer and my wife comes out somewhat confused and says, I just pulled a maggot out of my skin. Yuck. Yeah. And that's, I, you know, that's not something you typically <laughs> are prepared to hear, you know? And, uh, I was like, babe, what are you talking about? So I go with her back into the bathroom, and I, I help her pull all these maggots out of her bathroom. Oh, man. Now, after we tortured her by doing that, it was incredibly painful, but she wanted them out, <laughs> which is understandable. Yep. And so I started doing research online and find out that <laughs> if you just put petroleum jelly over the surface of it, it smothers the maggot, and it just comes right out. Which was right in time because of Bethany. Bethany. So yeah. she had one on her arm. Uh we because of the curfew we were still in the lockdown. We could not go out that night and get and get p- petroleum jelly uh, or vaseline. So the next morning immediately I ran out and and got some. We put it on her um her elbow and it it was praise the lord it came right out and she didn't make a sound. It it didn't seem to bother her at all. So So those are mango flies. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) All right. Number two, remind me why I don't want to ride a motorcycle in
1: Africa. Well, (laughs) um, motorcycles in Africa are a tremendous blessing. In fact, (laughs) during the lockdown, if you didn't have a motorcycle, you had no access to a motor vehicle whatsoever. And, uh, the motorcycle ended up being a tremendous help to us. You could take your backpack, I could run to the market on my motorcycle and I could load it up and get everything we need and, and come home. Otherwise you had no you had to walk. You had you had to walk everywhere you needed to go. You, you had no access to vehicle transport. And um so I, I was I would take my motorcycle to the church daily and, and I, I have an office here at the church that I that I try and get a lot of work done from. And uh, spend time with the guys here, and, and, and all of that. And so I was coming home, and during the during all this time, Masaka, the city, the town that we live in, had had been upgraded to a city. And so all the major roads through through the town uh, were under deep construction. They had ripped up the roads, any roads that were gravel, they're paving them and and turning them. It's part of the the regulations for a city in Uganda. Once Masaka is upgraded from a town to a city, they have to have paved roads. Now, what that means is, every day when you come through town, you don't know what roads are available or not. So you, you have to go, you have to be creative and go around. And so I, I had to go around this particular day, and the road I was on was all gravel. And um, I came to an intersection. Uh, I had an opportunity to cross the intersection, but I needed to get across quickly, otherwise I was going to hold up traffic. So I hit the gas on my motorcycle got across the intersection as I came across the other side, another man on a motorcycle pulled out right in front of me and I hit the brakes. I tried my best to stop, but you're on gravel. I began sliding and I T boned him right in the side of right. I mean, it was, it was dead in the center of his motorcycle, took him out. It threw me off to the side. Um, people will love to hear that. I did not have a helmet on. And, um, so I, I, I landed, uh, it was, it was a rough landing. <laughs> uh, it, it did cut my head open. I, I Praise the Lord, I did not go unconscious. Um, I was able to immediately come back to my feet. and um, Which yeah. is a good thing because if you had laid there for a little while, it could have been much worse. Huh? Yeah, so in Uganda, you're instructed, if you're in an accident, you need to leave immediately because a mob is going to form quickly and, and they're going to look for opportunity to take things that don't belong to them. And, um from what I understand, as the mob was forming and they were coming, it came, it went from being an empty intersection to, to dozens and dozens of people forming rapidly. And they were, they were chanting, come watch the Muzungu die, which means the white man, come watch the white man die. Now they weren't saying that in a, in a racist way. They did, they thought I was going to die. Right. They, 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 they thought that you're not going to survive that. Apparently it was bad enough that they really thought I was going to die. And then I stood up and the whole crowd went quiet. <laughs> and they're just looking at me like, you know, what is, it? what is this? And so, uh, I, I shook it off, you know, blood is running down my head cause I cut my head open. It broke my ribs. Um, I did not feel the ribs initially. Um, it was, it was later that day when, when I guess my body had time to settle down, um, that I, I realized my ribs were broken. And, um, and so I, I, I get by a guy is walking away with my motorcycle, uh, says he's helping. And so I, I, i yell for him to stop and he stopped and I jumped back on the bike and. I I turn the ignition on and I hit the start button and it doesn't start and then, and all I can think in my head is um, you've got to get out of here you know the, this crowd is coming they're 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 starting to argue with each other about I, I, it's all in Luganda and I didn't have I don't have enough understanding to know what they're arguing about but it, it's they're getting heated and then the guy I hit pulls up next to me and says I think my leg is broken I'm like what are you telling me for <laughs> and. um but in Uganda, if you're white and you get into an accident, it doesn't matter if it was your fault yeah, or not; you're, you're responsible. Like so, yeah. um, and and if you don't work with the guy, it can tie you up in in inordinate legal, legal battles for for years to come. So, um, so I, I told the guy, I said, give, "Give me your phone number." I guess phone number. I said, "Give me an hour and I'll call you." So, so I, I turned back to my bike. I hit the button again, and praise the Lord, that engine started, and I drove it home and um and cleaned my wounds. <laughs> <laughs> so we did take care of the guy. Uh, Brother Gross uh, actually called him for me and dealt with him on my behalf, and um, we paid his hospital bills and repaired his motorcycle. It, it, it was all of it together was less than hundred dollars. So it's it was well in principle. I hate it, <laughs> sure, but right. practically speaking, it was well worth the yeah. the small investment. So so you you repaired your bike. You still ride your bike, but now you. I always wear a helmet. Yeah. Good. Uh, you know, <laughs> the, you know the, the the logic behind it, if there is any, um, is in Masaka, you're not going very fast and you're usually not going very far. So it, it's, it's not that, un, you know, in the state of Florida back home, you're going 80 miles per hour down the highway. You're not legally required to wear a helmet. Yeah. And sure. uh, that I would not do. But if I'm doing 20, 30 kilometers in town, I, I was more inclined to do that. I don't do it now because it's just it's just too much of a risk. So I wear a helmet. Yeah. And I stay off of motorcycles. Yeah. Well <laughs> I, I could see that. I, I was wondering if you were gonna you know, uh Owen and Christopher rode a motorcycle to church yesterday. I I was wondering how you'd handle that, but they seem to enjoy it. So. They they seem to enjoy it. <laughs> it's it's a good experience. Boy. I'm
0: glad they enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I rode I rode in the car with you, <laughs> which I was satisfied to do. Amen. <laughs> All right, number three,
1: what have you learned about the operation of power tools yeah. since being in Uganda? So uh, some people know that I, I'm a bit of a woodworker, and um, I, 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 for many reasons, enjoy using very old hand tools. <laughs> <laughs> They're a lot less dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but when you need to get some things done a little more quickly, yeah. uh, you use power tools. And I was making a what, what is now a coffee bar in our home for my wife. And uh, part of the construction was to make these slats that go on the bottom shelf. And and so it's a lot of repetitive work. You're, you're putting it, you're running it through a saw to get them all the same size and, and all of that. And when you use a table saw, a table saw is one, is one of the tools I, I respect the most out of all of them. It is unbelievably dangerous. Sure. And um, there's a way to set the table saw up so that you greatly limit the possibility of getting hurt. And, and it works very well. It, it 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 can become very safe, you know, as safe as a table saw can be, if you'll set it up properly. Um, this particular day, I had switched back and forth between doing things, and I did not take the time to to fully set it up as safely. And and what that entails is, uh, if you're cutting a, 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 the boards, I were I was cutting, they were, they were about an inch thick, maybe three quarters of an of an inch, and so you want to set your table saw only high enough to cut that, that level, and that greatly reduces the possibility of you of you getting caught up in the table saw. Well, it was a little bit higher than it should have been. And somehow, this has never happened. It's never even come close to happening before. Somehow, my thumb got caught in the blade. And um, it, was, it was really odd. It was very surreal. I couldn't believe it had happened. But it, but it obviously happened. Blood was everywhere, and uh, my wife said all she heard was, "Oh no." <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, it is. It's a strange thing. It really. It's it's it's. You so, actually
0: still have all your digits. So yes, we can la- praise we can, the Lord. We can actually laugh about this. Yes, a bit. yes.
1: Everything is still here. Uh, I actually cut it behind the nail lengthwise, so it. It, instead of cutting this way where it would have removed it, it cut into it. So it, 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 it like opened it instead. And so that, that, that greatly, probably greatly saved things. Um, but I didn't know what, I didn't know how it, it had gotten cut at the time. I just know this was really bad. And, um, I, I called my wife's like, you know, babe, <laughs> what, what's going on? I said, I, I, I need you to grab the car keys and I need you to grab a towel and, and we need to go right now. And, and so she immediately jumped into action. She's nervous and really concerned at this point. And, uh, as I'm walking out my, out of my shop, the area that that is my shop, I, I look across the fence and my neighbor is, is brother Keith Stensis and I saw him walking out and I, I would have swore to you, I was yelling his name loudly, but I also, I can feel my body shutting down as I'm, I, I didn't know it at the time. I can feel something happening to my body, but I was going into shock. And, um, I'm calling his name and he's not responding. And it feels to me like I'm yelling his name, but, but I, but I don't, I'm, I'm getting really weak rapidly. All of a sudden my wife walks out and she screams his name and he, he looks up and, um, and she's like, he just got his finger on the table saw. And so, um, he tells me to come over there so that he could, he can get me in the car and I walk over there. And by the time I get to his driveway, I, I completely blacked out and collapsed. I woke up to him picking me up out of the driveway, or you know, trying to stand me up, and um, we get in the car and everything is just going bright white, and then I come back and it goes bright white, and it, it was a really strange experience. And so um, all we have available is one of the private clinics in town, so he takes me there, and, and uh, now I would not want my family ever having to go to those places, but they did a great job handling the situation yeah good yeah and uh took good care of it and uh, uh that they, they stitched it back up and and everything was still there to to be stitched back up and uh it it's it's a bit odd now if you looked at it you wouldn't really know you know something was wrong that it had been through a table saw but um it, it's kind of dead to the touch mm. and then and then but on this side it's if it gets hit it's like Fire going through there. So, Uh so there's some nerve damage and things, but, uh, overall it, it worked out. So not something I want to experience again though. Yeah. Speaking of, uh,
0: medical care in East Africa. Yeah. The fourth thing that I wanted to ask you about, we're, we're at this point in the, in the chronology of your of your arriving and adjusting in Uganda, we're beyond. This is that all one. in the you're, first year. <laughs> yeah. But this last one, you're you're oh, uh, beyond the first year at Just least over, yeah. a, a, at least the, uh, the 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 main event. But your wife uh, recently delivered a baby. Yes, Praise Lord. the Lord, a healthy baby. Amen. Mama's well. Yes. Baby's well. But that's a uh, child child childbirth is is. A, dangerous yes. thing yes. anywhere in the world to be to be honest but when you throw in uh the the factor of of being in africa mm-hmm. uh, i guess the risks are compounded somewhat so um,
1: but how how did you how did you handle that our 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 first baby was born in a camping cabin in tennessee <laughs> We had a There's mid-
0: preparation for yeah, <laughs> preparation
1: yeah. for Africa. Yeah, uh, we had a midwife uh, who, who, by the way, did an, an excellent job. I mean, they were, they were great at what they were doing. And um, uh, so we, we had a home water birth, and and this was the beauty of it. And this is what this this is leading to the answer for Africa. Two hours after Bethany was born, the midwife had cleaned everything up, examined the baby. They were gone. Me, my wife, and our baby are at home together. It's just a, a wonderful experience. Sure. And um, <clears throat> Kristen had no trouble throughout the course of her pregnancy f- with Bethany. And uh, the delivery was incredibly smooth. All went well. And so uh, our aim was to reproduce that in Uganda. Uh, home births, oddly, it, it, at least it's odd to me, are, are not common in, in, in Africa or in Uganda. In right.
0: um,
1: and, and fact, uh, to some extent, it's illegal here. Well,
0: there there are probably some good reasons for that, though, because infant mortality rate and the... Oh, uh, yeah. Those those were through the roof at one time. Yeah,
1: I I don't know that I can, considering the troubles in Africa, I don't know that I can complain about those realities. Um, But we, we, nonetheless, we we wanted to try our best to to reproduce that same situation. So we found a midwife here in Uganda. Um, She was from Ireland, uh, seemed to be very experienced at what she was doing. Um, but as, as time went on, it seemed, I began to become more and more concerned about her competence. I I was really starting to doubt her ability to do what, what we needed. And so that coupled with, uh, Kristen began to have legitimate, uh, blood pressure problems. Uh, in our previous pregnancy, she had iron, iron issues in this pregnancy. It was the same, but in the States, we were able to correct it quickly through her diet. Many of the problems that women have during pregnancy are, are a result of their diet, uh, what they're eating, and and at times being pregnant becomes a license to eat wildly, you know, and, and uh, you know, understandably so to some extent, but it, that's what causes a lot of the the the, the dangerous situations you can encounter. And um, if we couldn't get her blood pressure under control and her her uh, iron levels, her platelet counts as well, under control it's a risky thing to have the baby at home is that that creates the potential for the, the bleeding that occurs after having the baby. You can't stop it. And we're not at a hospital and we're in Uganda where you can get caught in traffic and be stuck for three hours and in, in a heartbeat. And, um, I didn't want to, I did not want that to happen to my wife. Obviously I, we, I didn't want to take a chance on it. Now my wife, she, she was leaning towards continuing with the midwife um, but then as I began to become more concerned with, with the midwife's competence, I, I, I finally told Kristen, no, we're, we're going to have to go to the hospital. Um, I can't, I can't have you with the, in, in, in this scenario with that lady handling the situation. It's just not gonna, not gonna be a good idea. So, um, I, I, I jumped on jump my motorcycle with your helmet on, <laughs> with my helmet on in Kapala, Absolutely. Um, so, uh, I began riding around to the hospitals and and met with some doctors and saw their their maternity wards and wanted to know what they had available and uh, we found there's there's a relatively relatively newer hospital in Kampala called Metapal and uh, we knew we knew someone who had had a back surgery there and we knew someone who had actually had a baby there and they both had a great experience so I went there I met with the doctor uh, she seemed very competent. Um, that day I brought Kristen back, they did an examination, and, uh, and the doctor said, you know, w- with her blood pressure and platelet count, I, there's no way I would sign off on a home birth. I, I would really highly suggest. And I'd, I was already at that conclusion anyways. But um, so then there's, uh, it's time for the baby to come. We decided we're going to have the baby there two days before the projected birth date. We, we, may, we had to make this decision, which we weren't too concerned about because babies never come on their, on their projected birth date except for hours.
0: Yeah. On the due date.
1: Yes. On the April 14th, Kristen is is putting Bethany to bed and she comes out and she said, babe, I'm having some really strong contractions. And I said, okay, why don't you, she times them and all that. She, she's got all that down and and understands that. So I said, why don't you sit down and time them and and I'll go and put Bethany to bed. Five minutes after I took Bethany in the back, she said, we need to go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, uh, we were, we had rented a place in Kampala just for this per, just for the birth of the baby. It just so happened that, that there was the, the property we were renting for that month came with a, um, a, a, a cottage. Good. Yeah, an extra cottage on yeah. the property, and it comes with your rental of the house. And uh, Brother Keith and Miss Sally often, especially uh, Miss Sally's had some some uh, medical issues recently, uh, like knee surgery and things like that. So they were coming back and forth to Kampala that month quite a bit, and she happened to be there. And um, she's the only person in the world at this point we would be overly comfortable with leaving Bethany with. And Bethany really? loves Miss Sally. So Miss Sally offered to watch her so we didn't have to take her with us to the hospital. And um, and so uh, it was bedtime, so she just put her to bed, and, and, and we headed off to the hospital. We're trying to get out of the driveway, and my car gets stuck at the top of the driveway. <laughs> and I cannot get it out. I mean, it was. I got out, and I'm walking around the van praying. Lord, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. I I cannot get this vehicle over. The driveway was extremely steep, and then at the top was a was a huge hump that you had to go up over. And at the same time, there's traffic passing on that road. So you really need to get up a lot of speed to get up over that hump. But if you go too fast, you pull right out into into oncoming traffic. It's just a terrible uh, driveway. Beautiful home, terrible driveway. Sure. And so I got stuck on that little hump at the top, and and I could not get the van out. So I finally kind of rocked it back and forth until I got sideways on that hill, and then punched it and jumped up over the curb, and we just barely <laughs> got all four tires up over the hump on the ground, and were able to go. And Kristen's like, "Baby, it's, it's okay, it's okay. We've got plenty of time." And she's basing this on her last pregnancy. We 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 finally left the house, at maybe eight forty. And, the, and Adrian is born by 905. <laughs> so, close call. <laughs> praise the Lord. It all, Brother, God's been so good to us. Yeah, praise the Lord.
0: Well, that's where we'll pick up next time. Thank you for tuning in, and I do hope that you'll join us for the second part of this conversation as we move from the day-to-day grind of life in East Africa to some of the weightier adjustments that Brother Urban has had to make in this first-year of ministry. Thomas also gives us a rundown of what that ministry has consisted of in the first year and what's on the horizon as they move into year two. You can subscribe to this program on a variety of different podcasting apps, and if it's been a blessing to you, feel free to invite others to tune in or rate and review the program wherever you may be listening. I always welcome your feedback. You can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at Conversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond.